you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. Our text this morning is short. You'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the Word of God that is holy, sufficient, and authoritative. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us by it, that you would teach us your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you remember the first time that you ever did something? I want you to especially think back to perhaps when you were small. Or if you're small now, you don't have to think back as far. Like the first time a little girl cooks something, a meal. And perhaps she's been in the kitchen with mom and dad comes home and she comes up, daddy, daddy, I did it and I made it all by myself. And dad says, that's wonderful, let me try it. And he eats some. It's sweet, but really it isn't true, is it? Because mom went out to the store and got all the ingredients Mom probably got out the measuring cups and measured everything out. Mom had the recipe. Mom set the dials on the stove. And perhaps the little one helped put the scoops in and ran to the stove when the bell sounded. But really, it was the work of another that allowed the blessing to come out. You might think to the first time was you started to learn to ride a bike. We're dealing with that a little bit in our family. And... The first time you take the training wheels off, you can ride, but the reason you can ride is because dad's behind, sweating, holding the back of the seat. And what happens when dad lets go? Kerplunk. But after a few times, you get it, and you go forward. The first time, perhaps, you played catch. You know this one, dads, right? you got to somehow take the ball and put it right in the glove. Otherwise, it's more likely to hit the nose than the pocket. Right? These are simple examples. But somehow, when we move to the realm of spiritual things, we become very old and we don't want to give up our illusions. We want to say, we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved. We're going to be in heaven. And we did it all ourselves. But you see, that's not true either. And so, our friend... The practical pastor, the Apostle Peter, comes up alongside us and helps us and describes for us the process of salvation. He's going to be, as we've been saying, going through in the next 12 or 10 verses or so, some of the most densely packed theology in the Bible from a practical fisherman. And so this morning, what I would like us to see is how Peter describes how we are chosen for redemption. 
And three things come to mind here looking at these two verses, these one and a half verses. The first is, we see God's sovereign work. The work of the Lord God. The three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that work comes to man. And so then we we can see man's response to God's work. What happens when man is the recipient of this work of God? And then finally, we get to see, briefly, the blessings that come or the results that come from God's work. Peter is going to encapsulate here what we call the doctrines of grace or what some of us know in a more scary fashion as election. And it comes here not from a professor, but from a fisherman. So let us now then look and see God's sovereign work. The first thing that we see is that God is the initiator. He is the actor. There is divine initiation at work. For Peter says that he is an apostle and he is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, notice here something simple. English teachers, homeschool moms and dads, parents. He says he's writing to the elect, the ones who have been chosen. He's not writing to those who are running or going or even believing. He's writing to those who are the object of choice. That's how they are described. That's what elect means. That's why when we say a politician has been elected, it is the result of people casting ballots, and they have chosen the man. You can't just walk in and say, I think I'll be mayor, and sit in the chair, and if the chair fits, be mayor. You can't. You have to be chosen. And that's who these people are. They are the chosen people. They are the objects of God's initiation. Now, remember our context. These aren't just elect people. These are elect exiles. Elect pilgrims, an older translation says. These people who are chosen are chosen in the midst of being scattered and wandering. That gives us a little bit of an insight here immediately as to why Peter, a fisherman, a pastor who's writing a pastoral letter, starts with such high theology. Because what he's saying, in essence, is, you are special. You ever do that with your children? They're having difficulty. Perhaps they're trying to master some skill that they can't. And you say to them, you are special. In spite of the fact that you can't do that, you're special because I love you. Not because of who you are, Not because of what you can do, not because of the money you can make, but because I love you. That's what God the Father says to us. It's not just these elect exiles, it's these elect exiles as well. So if you ever feel like an exile in town, if you ever feel like this is not your home, because you know it's not, we're strangers and pilgrims, Hebrews 11.13 tells us. If you ever feel that way, know that you are special because you are chosen of the Father. And it's not just that these people are objects. God is the subject. He is the one who chooses. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. It's the entire triune God. All three persons of the Godhead are described here by Peter. Now, 
Does that sound interesting to you? This is a drum I'm going to beat a little bit here, but we've got Peter, no formal training. When he's out in Acts, they're amazed that he knows and can put proper sentences together because he's just a fisherman. And he seeks, in two verses, to lay out two of the foundational doctrines of Christianity, the Trinity and election. This is pretty heady theology. You see, we are chosen. The people here are chosen. The elect are chosen by all three persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they each have a specific emphasis or task. And the first thing that we see that's highlighted is that these people, these exiles, are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This brings us up to a a pretty big word that we need to understand. If we're going to understand election, we need to understand foreknowledge. Now, what does this mean? Well, some believers attempt to mitigate the force of being chosen in order to assume that they really did everything, cooking the meal, in order to figure out that really it didn't matter that Dad had his hand under the seat of the bicycle. It was really them doing it. They say, well... Yeah, God chooses, but it's foreknowledge. He looks way down in the quarters of time, and he sees who'll be naughty and who'll be nice, and he picks the nice ones. Right? It's kind of like this. You ever go in the supermarket, and you're in the checkout line, and there's all the tabloids, and right around maybe November or December, the National Enquirer, they've got all these predictions. You know, Prince Charles will get married this year. Um... Brazil will win the World Cup. You know, Britney Spears won't shave her head. Things like that. And they're right about, what, maybe 5 10% of the time. They, they do about, those psychics predict about what you and I could do. Or if we randomly poked at things. And they, some people think that God is kind of like that, only he's better. He does that, but he just is right all the time. He's not right 5% of the time. He's right all the time. But you see, Peter says, that's not what this is. God doesn't look in the future and see who will have merit, who will be good. That just brings our work back into salvation. It might be a future work, but it's still our work. You see, foreknowledge is not looking forward and seeing what we do. It is actually much closer to what we might say, foreordination. God arranging the circumstances. God choosing according to his own decree. This shouldn't surprise us because the Bible speaks about knowledge in the sense of love more than in the sense of thinking. You may remember early in Genesis, it said that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. And God knows his people as a concept of covenant love. Well, If we're still not sure, the best way to understand what Peter's doing is to, I think, look for clarification and to look for it with Peter. That's easier than starting with someone else. And so, how does Peter mean this word foreknowledge? Well, if you move down a little bit, perhaps you'll have to turn a page to chapter 1 and verse 20. We see Peter use this sentence. Verse 19, But with the precious blood of Christ you have been redeemed like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. 
So here Peter says that Jesus Christ and his redemptive work was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Exact same word. So would we think that God looks into the future and sees what Jesus is going to do and says, you know what, I think I'll decide to send Jesus. No. It's a part of his eternal plan. That's throughout the scriptures. God determined to save a people. And so he sent Jesus Christ to fulfill and execute that plan. God decreed to send his son. It was the purpose of God to send Jesus. Jesus wasn't an accident. Jesus wasn't a second thought. No, that was the love of God from the beginning of time. Let's look at a different context in Acts chapter 2. You may say to yourself, well, okay, perhaps Peter's dealing with truths that are very hard. And Peter's like the early systematic theologians writing things out. But it's not really very practical for us. Well, Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching a sermon. And he's not just preaching any sermon, he's preaching an evangelistic sermon. And he's not just preaching an evangelistic sermon, he's preaching an evangelistic sermon to a hostile crowd. Okay? And he says this. Verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Same word group. How's that for evangelism? By the way, you're wicked and you killed your Savior. But what he's saying here is this is all according to the plan of God. This is not an accident. This is purposeful. Now, why would Peter do this? It's because being elect, being chosen according to the plan of God grants us great comfort. Don't lose sight of the context here. Peter's writing to people, remember we talked last week, who are in trouble, who are experiencing difficulties, who are scattered, who are experiencing persecution. And what he says is, your life is not an accident. What a comfort that is. Have you ever thought about that in your own life as you have difficulties with children? You think, if we only had one less child than we have, maybe life would be easier. Or if I only worked a different job instead of the job I worked. Or if I only lived in a certain place instead of that. You see, what Peter says to you is that God has a purpose for your life. Your life is not scatterbrained. Your life is not helter-skelter out of control. It is in the hand of God. And he has a purpose, a good purpose. Because you see, it's not just that we are elect according to God, the foreknowledge of God, but it is God the Father. You see, this kind of action is an action of divine love. You see, God knows because he loves he foreknows us because he loves us. In Romans 11, chapter, uh, verse 2, Paul puts it this way, that God did not cast off the people that he foreknew because he had set his love on them. The most famous passage in this is the golden chain of Romans 8, in verse 29. For those he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined to salvation those whom he had set his love upon. 
God sets the chain in motion. He is the initiator. But it is because of his love for his people. Notice also, too, that this election, this initiation, occurs in the context of sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. It's in the context of the work of the Son, of sacrifice, and of relationship. This phrase, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, is very reminiscent of another passage in the Bible. Speaking of things that are non-random, you may think that we randomly chose to read through the book of Exodus these past few weeks. No. It's because we're going to see that Peter is steeped in the book of Exodus. And this passage here is practically straight out of Exodus 24. It is a picture of Israel entering into the covenant of obeying God's call to be his people and having the blood sprinkled on them. But here, this speaks of better things. Obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, not the blood of goats or of heifers. You see, this election is put in the context of love and sacrifice and of relationship. It is because God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ that he is our father. It is because God predetermined and foreknew the Lord Jesus Christ that he has chosen us according to his foreknowledge. This is not some dry, dusty theology. This describes the love that God has for you and your Jesus. It doesn't get any more practical than that. This is also a result of divine planning. This is the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification to the Spirit, because God knows his plan from beginning to end, Isaiah 46.10 tells us. This language that is reminiscent of Israel is instructive to us. Just as God set his love on Israel for his own purposes, she was not the greatest, she was not the most numerous, there was nothing about Israel that would cause God to love her and to choose her for himself. So it is with the Christian. You see, election is the most humbling of doctrines. We don't walk around and go, look at me, I'm elect. Well, why are you elect? Is it because you're smart? Nope. Is it because you pray a lot? Nope. Well, why are you so proud of being elect? What did you do? Nothing. It's pretty humbling. Much more humbling than saying, I'm part of the people of God because I pray the most. Or look at me, Lord, I'm not like him. You see, election should humble us. Because it takes everything out of our hands and gives it to God. God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise. God gets all the honor. That's what Peter's saying. This is a part of his divine plan. And because of that, he sets us apart. Sanctification of the Spirit. You know this word, sanctification. It's kind of a fancy word for holiness. But actually, the root goes back to being set apart. When In the Bible, people write to the saints in this place. Who they're writing to are those whom God has set apart. See, saints are holy because they're set apart. They're not set apart because they're holy. They're made other. And so this describes the call of God, setting apart a people for himself. It's kind of like, to use another Exodus reference, Exodus 28. When the priests 
are sanctified. They are set apart from the people, given special clothes, given special cologne, given special work. That's what they're set apart from the people. And this is true, too, of the Christian. In Acts 20 and verse 32, Paul talks about the inheritance that is found among the sanctified, among the saints, the set apart. And you see, this reminds us to come back to this issue of humility. That we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are saints, but it is not because we are morally superior. It is because we are a distinctive community. Do you get that? This is incredibly important as we think about moving into a building and ministering in a neighborhood. We are going to minister, Lord willing, to those who are not saints. And the main differential is not that we are morally superior to them. There may be, one would hope there would be instances in which the Christian would obey God's law more than the non-Christian. Sadly, it's not always the case. But that is not the main difference. The main difference is that we are a distinct community, set apart by God for His own purposes. This is what this means, to be set apart, and this is the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's man's response then to this work? God does a mighty work, and how does man respond? First, man responds with gospel obedience. Now, what do I mean by that? That's sort of, as soon as I say that, that might pique your interest. What do you mean? I thought the gospel was about believing. I thought obeying was about doing and work. No. You see, Peter says here that we are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ, in addition to the for the sprinkling with his blood. Now, what this doesn't mean, and some commentators try and make it mean, is Jesus' obedience. I don't think that's what's going on here. Because we're not elect so that Jesus can obey. That just doesn't make sense. But we're uncomfortable, I think rightly so, with thinking that we are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ, referring to our obedience to the law, to our works. Well, what could it be then? It must be obedience to the gospel. That is, the obedience that you owe to the gospel is to believe. You see, the gospel is not a suggestion. By the way, if you really wanted a rich and fulfilling life, you may want to believe in Jesus. No, the gospel is, God is king, creator, and sovereign. You are not. You think you're God, and because of that, you have rebelled against him. God has provided for that in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. That's the gospel. It is a command, a gracious command given by God that we might have relationship with him. Paul says it this way in Romans 1, verse 5. He talks about the obedience of faith that is a part of his apostleship. Obedience to the faith of the gospel. He puts it this way in Romans 6, verse 16, a passage that you may be familiar with. He says, We are either slaves of the one to whom we obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And the righteousness there is the righteous standing before God. It is the gospel, that part of Romans 6 that is often called a part of the Romans road. 
Because remember the context here. It's not just obedience stuck out there in a vacuum. It's obedience and sprinkling with Jesus' blood. See, the work of Jesus Christ is what is in view here. It is the relationship that we have with God because of the work of Jesus. But it's not just gospel obedience that we are required to respond to in God's work. It's also gospel timing. You see, because if God is the initiator, if God is in charge, if God is the one who chooses, if God is the one who places his love, then the gospel timing is that man's response is subsequent to God's action, not before. Do you understand that? Let me put it simply, because this is critical. You don't do things and God loves you because you've done them. God loves you, and because he loves you, you do things. This is really important. Every child should know this. Child doesn't wake up in the morning, get out of bed and say, ooh, I wonder if I've got to do my chores or mom and dad are going to kick me out of the house. Right? No. Sometimes mom and dad may feel like that, but that's not what's going to happen. What the child should do is get out of bed and say, I love this home. I love the way I'm cared for. I love mom and dad. This is all internal, kids, because I know, especially as you get older, This doesn't come out the mouth so often. But you're thinking it. Because of that, I'm going to do this for mom. I'm going to do this for dad. That's what happens. It's subsequent. You see, it's God who chooses. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us to faith, sets us apart, sanctification of the Spirit. It's Jesus Christ who cleanses us by the sprinkling of his blood. He does all of these things, and then we obey the gospel. And then we believe. This is important. This is something that, as a minister, if you don't get this right, if you don't get the horse in front of the cart, you don't get to go into the ministry in our presbytery. This is important. This is a part of the gospel. If you don't have it right, you'll have difficulties in life. You'll have difficulties in explaining the gospel. You won't not be saved but it makes life so much harder. You see, Paul puts it in a very similar way. This is one of the reasons, again, why people think that Peter didn't write this letter because it's so Pauline. Listen to this passage from 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. See the phraseology is very similar? See what he's saying? God chose you And then the means in which he used to effectuate that choice is the work of the Spirit culminating in your belief. That's the road. That's the way we go down. It's gospel timing. You see, obedience is the end of the gospel, not the beginning of the gospel. This is critical. What does this mean then? Okay, so we've had a nice theology lecture, right? Even though I haven't used terms like monergism. Right? Or regeneration before justification. No. You see, the results of thinking on what we might call the doctrines of grace, God's sovereignty, election, are very practical. This is not something that you take into a cocktail party or a coffee shop 
and you use it to beat other Christians about the head with and show how much more versed in the scriptures you are. Some people do that with the doctrine of election. And it's pretty effective because when you're using the truth of the Bible, if you're, you, even if you're using it wrongly, it makes a pretty good club. But that's not what you're supposed to be doing with the Scripture. You see, the Scripture here says the result of God's work, the result of understanding this is three things. It's briefly, it's theological, it's practical, and it's pastoral. First, there's a theological benefit, and this is not just here. Theological benefits occur here as well. The first is that you have freedom from the guilt of sin. You are free. You are redeemed. You are chosen by God. God is on your side. You don't need to worry about God turning on you. And so you can defeat sin by the power of God. He's not against you. He's not waiting for you to slip up so he can Indian give salvation away from you. You see what a comfort that is? Do you see what power that is? Not power to show how great you are, but power to kill your sin. You see, you are free from sin. There's a second theological benefit, and that is you are sanctified by the Spirit. You are set apart by God. You are His. You are, Peter will say later, a people of His possession. There is a great benefit to that. You belong. Have you ever had that feeling? You move to a different town, especially maybe when you're a kid. You're not sure if you're going to make friends again like you did before. You start a new job, not sure it's really going to work. You really enjoyed going to lunch every day with the same two or three guys. Or maybe as a mom, you're in a new group. You see, we don't like not belonging. And... What Peter says here is, you belong, you are set apart by God. These are the theological benefits. There are practical benefits as well. You see, once Peter describes this salvation and how we get salvation, then he can break out the good wood and say, by the way, you need to obey. Not so you can get in God's good graces, but obedience follows the gospel. And he's going to do that later on in this book. He's setting up his descriptions for how we are to live the Christian life. If you want to know how the Christian life is to be lived, you need to start here. God's in charge. God is the initiator. God holds me in his hand. And I am special because of what God does, not what I do. Then that makes obedience so much easier. Because you're not worried about what's going to happen. It's like the guy who retires with a full pension and goes out and works a little bit after he's retired. He's not worried about how much money he makes. He's set. But he wants to be active. He wants to do things. He enjoys it. And that kind of work, it's even hard to call work. Right? That's the difference. That's a gospel difference. Finally, there's a pastoral difference. And you see it here in Paul's, or excuse me, in Peter's little greeting here at the end. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, when you first hear that, you may think, well, that sounds pretty familiar, right? Paul's always grace and peace this, grace and peace that, mercy and peace this. Every letter. This is the only place in the Bible. This is the only letter to a church where it's described that the prayer, the hope, is that grace and peace 
would be multiplied, would be plentiful, would fill you to overflowing is the, is the feeling of the word. You see, Peter wants them not just to have grace and peace. He says, I want you to have the greatest peace possible. I want you to have such peace of heart that you're not troubled. I want you to know the grace of God more than ever before. And because I want that, I'm going to tell you about God and his initiation and his election and the sprinkling of the blood and the sanctification of the spirit. That's why, because I want you to have peace and grace. And finally, as we've already alluded to, there's a pastoral dimension to this and that. There's humility. This is not a doctrine for debate or argument. You know, the Westminster Confession sometimes gets a bad rap. People will talk about it in the context of saying, well, this is so people can talk about the fine points of theology and it's so that people can make fun of other people or correct other people or do things. This doctrine of the eternal decree is described this way by the Westminster Confession. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That men attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or calling be assured of their eternal election. So this doctrine shall afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation. This doctrine is not about how smart we are and how much better at the Bible Presbyterians are than Methodists. This doctrine is about providing comfort and assurance to your neighbors who maybe don't believe this doctrine. This doctrine is about finding comfort in your family. That's what this doctrine is for. It is a means to assure and comfort ourselves. And this is especially appropriate this morning as we think on a place of comfort and assurance, a table laid out before us. And so as we begin to prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, I invite you to dwell on a God who is a divine initiator, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and who wants you to know this so that you might love Him more and you might be comforted in all of your circumstances. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this word. We thank you for hard truths, truths that we need. And we ask, Lord, that you would even now be preparing our hearts to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.